BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. It's Monday, October 14th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. I'm off this week, but in my place is our correspondent, Adam Bristol. Following up on his super interesting interview with Mac Richtel, he decided to interview him again, this time about a novel that he had written. We live in Silicon Valley, or at least adjacent to it, and it's an ideal as much as it is a place. Silicon Valley is a place of innovation, progressive idealism, and capitalism. As companies from Silicon Valley shape the way that we interact with each other and many other aspects of our society, there is an ethos of idealism that permeates at least the initial goals of these kinds of startups. But ultimately, do they fall short of their promise? There have been plenty of ways in which the tech giants have disappointed us or even pulled us into a future that we really don't want and is edging towards dystopia. And all over the world, governments and municipalities have tried to recreate Silicon Valley, and the success has been relatively limited. Even though it has this worldwide cultural impact, traditionally the valley has not been the subject of enough scrutiny, both for its successes and failures. Of course, there are many books on Apple and Google and Facebook and other tech titans. And in episode 164, I spoke with journalist Alexandra Wolfe about her book, Valley of the Gods, which chronicled the lives of young Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. There's also the recent success of John Carreyrou's Bad Blood, an in-depth report on the rise and fall of the medical device company Theranos. Even J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy and Hawk Chiel's Strangers in Their Own Land are important critiques of Silicon Valley because they highlight the cultural divide between the Bay Area and the rest of the United States. But then there's also satire. The hit HBO show Silicon Valley is a parody of the place itself. And the short-lived but actually pretty good Amazon TV show Betas was the same. Now New York Times reporter Matt Richtel, author of both fiction and nonfiction and longtime resident of San Francisco, has written a book called The Man Who Wouldn't Die under the pseudonym A.B. Jewell. It's a hilarious whodunit mystery in the noir style that takes place in Silicon Valley. And on this show, even though we know that spoilers don't spoil stories, we're not going to tell you the ending. But we will say 
that he created memorable characters and situations that poke fun at the memes from Silicon Valley. Matt Richtel is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of several works of fiction and nonfiction. He was most recently on our podcast uh, after the, uh, the release of his, uh, one of my favorite books, of, uh, science books of 2019, which is An Elegant Defense, An Extraordinary New Science of the Immune System. Now he's back with a new novel under the pseudonym A.B. Jewell. It is a satirical approach in the mold of a Raymond Chandler hard-boiled private eye. Uh, it's called The Man Who Wouldn't Die. Matt Richtel, thanks again for coming on Inquiring Minds. I'm so pleased you'll have me. So we have in the film noir or the just the noir genre of mysteries, we have Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe. Now we have Fitch. Don't call him Mr. Fitch. It's Fitch. But of course, this Fitch lives in modern day Silicon Valley with all the quirks and foibles of our of our little locale. Tell me what brought you to write this book in this novel and in this form and in this place. I believe this book was brewing in me for about 20 years. And I remember that in dot-com boom number one, I wrote a little column for the New York Times, just this little itty-bitty thing uh, for the inside of the business section where I went and looked at the number of press releases over the course of the month that used the word revolutionary to describe a product. And like some of the stuff on the list was mind boggling, like a pen that might eventually have wireless access. I don't think it could have been that exactly because they didn't have even that capability. But essentially, it was just like a digital writing implement, meaning it was a pen. (laughs) There was nothing revolutionary about it whatsoever. And I think if I dig back a little bit beneath what motivated this book, It's that over the years of taking Silicon Valley very seriously, I think I began to um, internalize the absurdity like a pimple. And this book represents its bursting. I should remind our listeners that your your first work of nonfiction, if I have the order correct, was A Deadly Wandering, which is about the pervasive and, of course, pernicious effects of texting while driving in how the the world was trying to come to grips with this new form of communication uh, and it became really a public health nuisance. And so you've, you've followed the tech industry for a long time. You live here in the Bay Area. And so you've obviously followed the tech companies, their rise and their prominence today. So you're really well suited to observe, I guess, from the inner sanctum, uh, this, uh, this cultural uh, influence. And one of the, you know, one of the things that Silicon Valley tells us, or the thing that it tells us, is that it's out to change the world. And um, and I was I did a book reading last night, and we talked about what Silicon Valley was, and there was actually a lot of anger in the crowd. Uh, fortunately, not directed at me, but when they talked about what Silicon Valley represented to them in this audience here in San Francisco, a lot of it was around greed. And I'm wondering if there's a pretty big disconnect between what Silicon Valley sometimes tells us it is, a change agent, a change machine, and, and what, it, what it might well be at its core, which harks back to the really early uh, Raymond Chandler's and Sam Spade's A Town About Greed. And this is a story about the seedy greed underneath the marketing of the valley. Does the valley... Are they misguided when they when an entrepreneurs believe 
that they can do well by doing good, meaning that certainly they have high-minded ideals around societal change and improvements, but yet they're also certainly not averse, and I'd say the venture capital community certainly requires this, if not encourages this, is to do extremely well and to, and to grow fast and to scale quickly, which means really corporate growth and profits. Is it, are, they, are they misguided in that doing well by doing good? That is, the doing well often comes at the expense of doing good? So here's, here's what I want to say. I, I, I chose in this lifetime to be a journalist first because I think these are complicated issues and not a comedian where everything can be mocked. So the first thing I want to say is this is a complicated place with complicated people. And like all of us, uh, the entrepreneurs who are drawn here and, who, and many of whom are astounding are trying to marry a whole bunch of complicated ideals, including wealth and um, public service. But I, I want to say that, that where things feel off to me is that there has been for a long time uh, an idea that efficiency is an objective good, that the more efficient you get or the more efficient and cost effective you make a business, the better the world is. That is an objective truth for capitalism which, and I am a capitalist, but it's not an objective good. And so there's a disconnect between those two ideas in Silicon Valley. Do you think that comes from economics, you know, an efficient market hypothesis that is reducing frictions in markets essentially allows information flow freely. And so therefore there's, there's less, uh, I guess, um, well, what's the term? I, I want to say inefficiencies, but that's basically very circular. That well, is that, no, but that's exactly the point, Adam. It is very circular. There's a so when this book starts, this this woman comes in that your proverbial femme fatale to Fitch's office, and in order to establish her bona fide, she says, "I'm a good person. I've started the NF Foundation." I N E F F. He says, "Well, I, he has no idea what that is." She travels the country and. She helps communities where children are not maximizing their efficiency. And he says, you got to be kidding me, like, give me a break. And she says, I know right here in America, there are entire communities that are not maximizing their efficiency as if the, the, the race to be efficient is, is an inherent good. And the more efficient we've gotten, if you, if you want to use that phrase, the more we've sort of created faster and better access to items or materials or services we would consider representative of the platonic ideal, the more we've seen people unhappy in this country, if you look at happiness measures. So some part of efficiency, maximizing access is not, create, is not the same thing as happiness. And so I think we have to ask exactly what we're buying with all this efficiency. Well, when I read that part, and that comes very early in the novel, two thoughts came to mind. And they were a bit in opposition to each other. The first was, I mean, of course, there's the absurdity of it. But I can tell you that a lot of, a lot of governments and places around the world, if not the country, are always asking themselves, how can we make the next Silicon Valley, right? They're trying to emulate that very same ethos that, that is here, and they're trying to replicate it somewhere else. Whether that's good, perhaps that's misguided, but that was a thought that came to mind. And the second thought that came to mind was from your, you're a writer at the New York Times, and I distinctly remembered an article from a, a year or two ago in the business section of the Sunday Times asking, is Italy too artisanal? 
By that they meant that is were were there was there obstacles to growth because of the inefficiencies and the inability to scale a lot of these art artisan practices of say winemaking or cobbling shoes or some of those fine crafts. And I thought those two things were sort of very much that those those immediately popped into my mind when I heard that when when uh, when uh, Tess Donahue was the character's name walked into Fitch's office. When the femme fatale walks in, I just to address those in 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 kind in order. Uh, I, it's it's. I want to be very careful. This is not a this is not a mockery of the um, of Silicon Valley in general or of capitalism at all. It's just pointing out that things that have been taken as an inherent good require some scrutiny. And so when places say we want to replicate Silicon Valley, to me, what they want to replicate actually is quite enviable. And it, it's a creative, innovative, thought-provoking environment. That, that seems to me to be a very powerful idea. The idea of being something too artisanal actually raises an even a related question to me, and one that's very potent, which is, what is our end game? What are we trying to achieve? And that's a question that has eluded Silicon Valley because it has been stuck in trying to achieve efficiency and maximizing whatever the thing might be. And that creates a kind of entropy around it that begs the larger question. And it's really actually, unfortunately, if, if this next word may have everybody turning off the podcast, but it's an existential question. You know, what, what is going to make us happy? What is going to make us feel satisfied? What is going to have us getting along? I mean, I don't know. Are we looking for that? Are we looking for eternal life? Maybe that's what the end of this is. I, I think we have to ask what it is we're going for. And I'm not sure Silicon Valley's done that, that kind of navel gazing yet. If you're struggling to get a good night's sleep, you've got to try a purple mattress. The Purple Mattress will probably feel different than anything you've ever experienced because it uses this brand new material that was developed by an actual rocket scientist. It's not like the memory foam you're used to. The Purple material is both firm and soft at the same time, so it keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable. Plus, it's breathable, so it sleeps cool. Try it for 100 nights risk-free, and if you're not completely satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. It's also backed by a 10-year warranty. Plus, you'll get free shipping and returns. You're going to love purple. And right now you'll get a free purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. That's in addition to the great free gifts they're offering statewide. Just text MINDS to 84888. So the only way to get this free pillow is to text MINDS to 84888. That's M-I-N-D-S 84888. Message and data rates may apply. This episode is sponsored by Bayer Crop Science. Bayer knows that behind every breakthrough are people who dare to move the world forward. It's human ingenuity that drives progress. Time and again, we keep doing the things that couldn't be done. The sky was the limit until we walked on the moon. It once took weeks to communicate before it took a fraction of a second. So what's next? Bayer is working with farmers to shape the future of agriculture. Farms where all life grows together. Tools that help plants and farmers use less water. And crops that can raise communities out of poverty. What we can achieve is simply an extension of what we can imagine. We've been proving it for thousands of years. That's why Bayer is driven to find even better answers to today's best solutions. When we're brave enough to challenge what hasn't been done, we discover the science behind what's yet to come. That's science for a better life. A central character in the novel is Donald Donahue, affectionately known as Captain Don. 
When you set up Captain Don, he he has some attributes that you would recognize in some of the other very, you know, celebrated entrepreneurs of Silicon Valley, yet this is a anti-innovation rant that you're led to believe at this part of the novel is kind of underneath the surface. I'm just curious, tell, tell us about how you conceived of Captain Don and maybe what you were trying to get across with him. Well, I'll tell you an interesting phenomenon I discovered over the years as I covered Silicon Valley. I noticed that that when I met young, ambitious, successful people, they really wanted to tell me about their business and they wanted the thing to thrive. And they were creating a product that they believed in wholeheartedly and they they wanted it they wanted to be identified with it. But as these people got older and as I dealt more and more with the older um, you know wizened folks of Silicon Valley, I noticed that there was something else that was growing important to them and that was the idea of legacy. Now this may not sound all that revelatory. People often want to seek legacy. But what I think of when I think of Captain Don is the idea that when confronted by his death, he had to really evaluate what his priorities were and what the world was about. And I think I've seen that played out in Silicon Valley, where in the short term, people justify innovation and the creation of wealth on its own terms. But looking back, they realize that just may not be the kind of legacy they want. I kind of wonder, too, you know, you hear this sometimes that there was an earlier generation of Silicon Valley that sort of created, I guess, the antecedents of the modern, you know, view of it, where you had more of the tinkerers, more of the, I, I don't know, almost like a salt of the earth, um, you know, rebel and just kind of a little bit outsiders and they were tinkerers in their garages. And and that maybe doesn't quite characterize the the group of entrepreneurs today. And so I wondered if Captain Don was also symbolizing the maybe the cultural divide or the generational divide between his his era of of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs versus Daraj and Donnie's and some of the others and I'm I'm using character names here uh, that certainly Matt knows he created them but they're they're certainly and I I sense it too that is perhaps the earlier generation you know th- there are some cultural per, uh, generational divides between the two I think you're right. I think once it became clear that Silicon Valley was, you know, is the gold rush in Northern California in in the in the late 1800s, a lot of a, a different breed of person started coming here. I've even heard stories that Wall Street is having trouble retaining people because this is perceived to be the place to go. But I, it, it, there was a place when I was reading through this book. The other night, and I, I I laughed out loud at my own jokes, which is always bad form. But I, can I tell you about the young people and Froom, the business they've created? Yes, yes, because you know, as a as a Stanford alumnus, having spent a lot of time on University Avenue, I particularly like that part of the book. They have come up with a business. Of course, they're in like double secret alpha beta mode. So no one's allowed to know what it is, but it's called Froom. And their entire raison d'etre is to help companies name conference rooms to maximize productivity. And one of the characters, I think this is Diraj, says the, the conference room is the new garage, the startup within the startup. Where ideas get generated and flourish, or they don't, and they will die. Trust me, Fitch. They will never be born if the conference room 
room doesn't have a what. And he goes, a what? The right name. You think it's an accident that Google keeps generating new ideas, brilliant new ideas that actually have the potential to generate revenue? No way. Listen to their conference room names. Mandela's Sandals, Sans Permit, The Mad Hatcher. Fitch says, let's move on. I guess my last question for you is, this book fits squarely into what is a there's there's a it's Silicon Valley no question is uh, is rich fodder for for satire because of the high mindedness and and the pervasive influence it has um, you know but what what do you think America perhaps misunderstands about Silicon Valley or doesn't have right something that maybe doesn't it would be an undertone of the book that maybe people isn't readily apparent I don't think the rest of the world understands the level of angst that exists here because it is easily masked by the level of wealth. Oftentimes you hear people in Silicon Valley talk about having high class problems and um, they think about where their kids are going to school and they think about traffic And they think about whether they really want to be here, Adam. And I know you know this because you've got kids in schools in San Francisco. Um, Isn't it a weirdly frequent conversation for a group of people who from the outside are sitting on top of the world? No, it's a, yeah, I agree. And it wasn't that way when I was growing up in upstate New York, you know, is there was, I guess, in a way we were limited in our options as I understood them at the time as a child. So in a way, we're, we're the beneficiary of many different options, some good, some not so good. But with that optionality comes a lot of consternation, <laughs> as well as overlaid on top of a culture of you know, exceptionalism, right? Everyone wants to succeed and be successful and flourish. And so why do you think, um, why do you think, so you think you would put it on, there are so many options available to us, or is there some other underlying anxiety that drives the conversations around here about restlessness? It's a great point. I guess I do think of, there is a keeping up with the Joneses, and you see these incredible stories of, uh, of great wealth and um, great success. I think this, this, this area has, attracts a disproportionate number of highly educated people, presumably many whom are ambitious. And so there is this feeling of self, you, the need to self-actualize, right? To take a kind of psych, psychology term, like, am I living my fullest life, right? Um, and if you feel like you're not doing that for whatever, you know, I think maybe other places or other times people were more content with, I'm putting food on the table, I have, my kids are healthy and, I'm, and everything's going well. There wasn't this angst about, am, why aren't I doing the next great dot-com? And if, it, because you see so many examples of it. I had an interesting experience over the last two months in that we spent the summer in Colorado, which is where I grew up and coincidentally my wife grew up. We didn't know each other then. We took our kids back. And I was struck by um, by a a culture that I saw in Colorado that put into sharp relief what I've seen in San Francisco and then also in New York um, by virtue of working for the New York Times at a distance. And in Colorado, people think absolutely nothing of the idea of going for a, a bike ride or playing tennis at lunch 
Um, if you see somebody do it, nobody says, oh, you took the afternoon off. It's just an understood part of the lifestyle there. And in, and in New York, um, you could never, ever do that because if you didn't sit at your desk all night, someone else will and you'll, and you'll lose your chance at a promotion. So they're like on opposite ends of the what's expected spectrum or what's allowed spectrum. And that creates a kind of entropy that reinforces those trends. And in San Francisco, I see a lot of people who are really stuck in between trying to figure out, I think it's okay to go for a hike at lunch, but it might not be. So I better leave my device on to suggest I'm still there. And maybe maybe we're kind of tweeners here. I'm not sure, but to go back to your question about what do people not understand, I don't think they understand the restlessness of this place. I agree with you. And just thinking about it here in real time, you know, we live in this area where you hear about this almost um, one-upsmanship among the perks, right? The corporate perks. Google offers, you know, dry cleaning in a cafe, and then Pinterest offers this, and then Facebook has a has a an inflatable slide instead of an elevator, and it becomes this, you know. So there is this veneer underneath that. It is a uncertainty, or or or, or the harsh reality of fact that people have to put in long hours. And I have often said that one thing that venture capitalists do, and there are many many you know, speeches and podcasts is they're almost like kind of, you know, they're, they're trying to inspire entrepreneurs to do great things and, and it's, and and letting them know of the sacrifices they'll need to make to do that. But what they're actually doing is kind of like meat tenderizers, right? You kind of, kind of pound them a little bit to make them realize that like, you shall work incredibly hard. You shall work incredibly hard. You might fail, but I'll succeed if you succeed. So you better work incredibly hard. The restlessness and maybe this is just from my own position, both as a white, it really is a white male, is that I think there's incredible sensitivity, San Francisco, because of its progressive nature and its progressive roots on the plights of others and knowing that the city does have issues with inequality, does have issues with racial uh, divides and insensitivities. So I feel acutely aware of that inside a bubble of great wealth. Would you be less inclined to feel that in a wealthy suburb? Maybe not, I, perhaps not, because if it's just more homogeneous, you wouldn't you, be confronted with. It. Yeah, I, I just think it would be a little bit of out of sight, out of mind. I don't know. I just wonder. I think of that a lot because, you know, my we we my wife and I really consider diversity in our uh, the choice of schools, and there are a lot of really great schools in San Francisco, but I'm not so sure they would score high in a diversity score. Well, with that, Matt Richtel, AB Jewel. Thank you very much for your time today, and thanks again for being on Inquiring Minds. That's it for another episode of Inquiring Minds. Thank you for listening, and a special thank you to supporters on our Patreon campaign. Especially Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, David Noel, Derek McComiskey, Eric Clark, Herring Chang, Joel, John Kirk, Jonathan Worsley, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgool, Sean Johnson, Stefan Meyer Awald, Trey Bean, and Yushi Lin. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of the show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by New Zealand-based music producer and composer Rian Sheehan. I'm Andrew Visconti. Sitting in for me this week was Adam Bristol. See you next week. Oh,
my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. 